One of the most important pieces of a trauma-informed biographical timeline is uncovering the hidden resilience a person has demonstrated over a lifetime. In part one of this episode with Mary Vicario, she explains the research and stories behind the five resilience factors and how to understand how these factors are founded in neuroscience. My name's Mary Vicario, and I started off as a teacher in the early 80s, right when crack cocaine was hitting, and had in my classroom children who were severely affected by um, living in houses where crack was being used. And I noticed that my second graders had an almost innate ability on how to help those children feel safe, and I had no clue and I wanted to learn what they seemed to know innately. So I went back to school after seven years and got a master's degree in counseling. And then when my supervisor uh, left the field, she asked that my retirement gift to her be that I attend a training called Learning from Women at Harvard Medical School, because back then in the mid-90s, actually early 90s, they thought only women experienced trauma. Where that women only experienced, experienced trauma. trauma. <laughs> yes. Right. Soldiers or women. Okay. Yes. There was a big divide. And it was also believed at the time that what soldiers experienced was very different than what women and children experienced. Why do you think that was? I think because we didn't have a lens to see inside the brain. I honestly do. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite experiences at that conference, and I started going every two years when they offered it in Boston, was Judith Lewis Herman talking about when she the first time she could see inside the brain to see what drama had done and showing it to one of the people who was convinced that PTSD from combat is different than PTSD from being battered or abused. And she showed him the brain scans and the person said, these are all combat veterans. Right. And she broke it down said, actually. So now that we can see inside the brain and we can see, wow, here's what's happening to the brain, then what can we do to help that brain? When people believed there was a difference between men and women, was that a perception of gender at the time or? My experience of it, and so there may be broader experiences, I'm sure, were that combat experiences were so much worse. And what we've learned is that there's no need to compare or rate trauma, who's worse, who's is less. When you have toxic levels of stress, whether it comes from combat or other things, we're finding out that the brain's reacting similarly. Mm -hmm. So at that time, we were ranking people's experience. And in that ranking, frequently when you rank something, women and children fall to the bottom. Mm -hmm. Their experience isn't as extreme. It's called a stereotype threat. Claude Steele has three or four decades worth of research on how it affects people in a striated society, which is what we live in. So people of color, would also, their experiences would be considered less important. What I love about Claude Steele's work is not only how he shows how stereotype threat, this is a quote from him if I get it correct, is a cloud that hangs over our nation gathering our nation's history. It's a beautiful quote. His is probably more eloquent than my attempt at it, but he shows how it develops, how it literally affects your functioning, but then, this is the best part, what you can do to reverse it, and I love that. So even before we could see inside the brain, when I started, first started this work, I was blessed to work with this really cool program that combined five different funders. So there was um, the Board of DD, Juvenile Court, the Drug and Alcohol Board, 
Children's Services and Mental Health Board, because mental health and drug and alcohol were separate back then. And instead of fighting over who had to help kids that crossed the systems, they started with 300 of their most challenging kids that crossed the systems, and we were in charge of helping them with anything, including extracurriculars. Mm. And so I started doing research on if you can't get therapy or you do get therapy, but you continue to live in a violent environment, what helps you overcome that? And I came across a study by Valentine and Feinauer who looked at women who were sexually abused in a cult, so they never got treatment. And they only studied the women who did not recreate that sexual abuse Mm. when they got out of the cult. Mm. And it was a small grouping, but they showed five resilience factors not only that the women had, but they were trying to answer the question, are you born with it or can you learn it? Believing that you were either born with it or you weren't. What are those five factors? In the original study, and they listed them in order of least effective to most effective, which I find very interesting. Number five was autonomy. And what they were describing, having the ability to feel safe enough to have power with others. So you have the power to accomplish your goals. Because what trauma teaches you on a visceral body level is that the person with the most power is the safest person in the room. Mm. And frequently that's the most violent person in the room. Yeah, so that gets back into your original comment around the most powerful thing in the stereotype, Brett, is the piece about what you can do about it. Yes, exactly. Then the next one they looked at was self-esteem. And they looked at um, the Rosenberg definition of self-esteem, which breaks self-esteem into three very salient components. The first one is sense of self, your personal preferences, your likes and dislikes. And over time, we've learned that it's knowing what you dislike that allows you to say no. If you're never allowed an opinion, the part of the pre medial prefrontal cortex you need to say, I don't want this in my life, doesn't develop. Mm. So you can't say no. So in many ways, perpetrators know what they're doing or they don't know what they're doing, but they're getting the same result. When they take voice and choice away, you're also taking away the part of the brain needed to say no. Mm-hmm. So that's personal preference part of self-esteem. The next part... Yeah, and I think that's so interesting because a lot of times what you'll find when you ask them something as simple as, what's your favorite color? They or, don't have it. Where do you like to, you know, mm-hmm. where do you like to go eat? Yes. It, it's it's kind of like, well, I don't know. And it, it's, yes. it's, it's a hesitance to even want to share. Frequently with children and I've seen with individuals with developmental disabilities, once someone knows their preference, they make them earn it. Mm-hmm. Really, wouldn't it be sad if we had to earn everything that gave us joy? Right. You know, so then to protect yourself, you don't let anyone know what your preference is so that you can keep your preferences around you and not have them taken away and be made something you must earn. Sense of self-worth is the next part of self-esteem, which is your feelings of worth and value. When do you get messages that you matter? And when we don't get those messages or we get those in convoluted ways, sexual assault survivors only got nurturance and affection when they were being sexual. So sex and affection then get paired. So I'm of worth and value when I am a sexual object. And even for people who weren't sexually abused, so much of our media does the exact, yes, presents that image to young girls. So when do we have relevance? When do we matter? So literally helping people recognize that. And in Claude Steele's research, it shows that when you can show someone not just what they did that was helpful, but how it helped a group how it helped the situation, 
they get the relevance piece on top of it all. So not just the self-efficacy, which is the third part of self-esteem. I can affect change. How can I affect change? Well, guess what? Oppositional defiance, manipulation, lying, stealing are all ways to affect change. So when we can look at those at attempts of self-efficacy and we connect to the self-efficacy in the determination and creativity, then we can actually help them experience self-efficacy in the way Claude Steele describes it in his book, affecting change for a greater good. So name them again, just an yes. overview. Okay. Sense of self, your personal preferences, your likes and dislikes. It eventually develops into your moral code, research shows. Sense of self-worth, your sense of what's my worth and value in this world. Do, do I have relevance? Do I matter? Okay. And thirdly, sense of self-efficacy. How do I affect change? Okay. Then they look at something called external supports. And in and this is another resilience factor. Another now. resilience yeah. factor. Okay. So external supports are who outside of you, interestingly, supports you or what outside of you. Pets are a wonderful example. And another one that they described, which feels external in your brain, but it's really an internal support, is the use of fantasy in your imagination. So think about those kids who make up those wild stories that you know there's no way they're true and they're the hero of the story. Or maybe their dad or their mom is always the hero of the story. But you know, guess what? Dad's in jail. He's, he didn't really do those things. Well, saying that isn't helping, but connecting with... Saying, no, oh, your, dad's your dad's in jail. jail. He yeah. didn't. He couldn't do those things. And clearly he wouldn't if he wanted, you know, because right. he's in jail. I mean, right. they're trying to help the person face reality. Exactly. They're trying yeah. to do with the skills they have, help someone face a very painful reality. Right. But what we've learned is that you can visit the fantasy world. And when you visit the fantasy world and can connect with those feelings of having a parent that is a hero, having a parent that can do all the things that maybe your parent in real life cannot do then your brain gets the neurochemicals it needs, the oxytocin and the dopamine, to literally have what it needs to now face the sad reality of your life. Then maybe I don't have this in my father, but guess what? Maybe I can get it from someone else. Or I can just, in my mind, this is where writers come from frequently, create the story I need in my mind. Create the character I need in my mind. It's really powerful that sense of connecting with the emotion behind the story, not getting caught up in the details. Because when you connect with the emotion, they get the neurochemicals they need to eventually share with you, with you, the reality of their life so you can connect with them in their pain. So wow, there's the power of not feeling alone in the moment. Right. That's an external support. That's an external support. Um, Activities can be that. So, you know, sports, it doesn't have to just be fantasy, but it can be sports, Crafting, Crafting, singing. singing. Yes, all of your hobbies and interests, especially when you can connect with other people who share those same passions. Okay. So, and then that gets taken to a whole new level in the next resilience factor, which is affiliation. Okay. Feeling part of a group that's larger than yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you're a teen, your biology actually drives you to do that. So if you can't get that in a positive way, you frequently will join a gang. Or sometimes some neighbors, you have to join a gang to have the safety you need to get back and forth to school. Right. 
and Ashanti Branch has some really powerful work about that called the 100,000 Mask Project, where he's working with youth who literally have to do things to survive just to get to school. And so he talks about with them what's on the outside of your mask on your way to school. What is it protecting on the inside? Where is it safe to have the inside of your mask show? And how can we create those safe places for you here at school? How can the school help? Talk about power with. And then they create clubs around that. And in fact, it's a club anyone can join online. So people who can't get out and get to clubs can join the 100,000 Mask Project. Really, really powerful. So that um, people and passions is what I call it, is all about this affiliation, the second strongest resilient factor there is. Connecting with something larger than yourself. What's the first strongest? The number one resilience factor is safe adults in positions of authority. So developing safe connection with adults in positions of authority. Mm -hmm. So when you can be the adult who sees the resilience beneath the survival skill and you can connect with, wow, you know what? There's places in your life, I bet, where it's not safe to directly ask for what you need. Thanks for showing me that. In my classroom, it's safe to directly ask for what you need. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could practice it. It contradicts their experience with a person in a position of authority who's using that authority to hurt them. Right. So it's really crucial to have those contradictory experiences so the person can literally expand the neural network, move beyond the poverty of experience that trauma has caused by limiting their neural networks to just power over. What do you think then with the second one with affiliation? So why is that so important? Because it shows how you can contribute to something larger than yourself that can have an even larger impact. So it amplifies your self-worth and your self-efficacy and your agency. It amplifies everything. So literally, it helps your brain not only get twice the dopamine from an act of kindness for someone else, but it shows like a ripple effect. It's the ripple effect. Yeah. And you have belonging. You matter somewhere. Yeah. So yes. finding people who are going to be able to see your worth. Yes. And I get that. And it's and not just what you can give them. It's that you it's share right. an interest or something. Right. You're getting yes. something mutually. Yes. From each other. At the end of the day, it's it's how are we just ordinary and present with each other? Yes. In a way that is uh, taking ownership of our own role in somebody's life and saying, actually, I, I do have a place here. And it can be simple and small. But what you're saying is that that simple, small act is is life-changing. Yes, yeah. life-changing. I can't remember the book off the top of my head, but in one of the books that I've studied, a woman talked about, it was once again, I think it was a woman, but it could have been a man, can't remember the gender of the young person who's being sexually abused almost every night. And it was in a condo or something, but it shared a wall with the house next door. And just knowing that there were people over there who on her way home from school gave her cookies or said, hi, how are you? Nice to see you. Mm -hmm. She said, just knowing someone over there cared for me allowed her to survive. She said, it allowed me to survive that abuse every single night, just knowing that on the other side of that wall. And that person didn't even know what was happening to her. Yeah. Just said, hi, good to see you every right. day. Maybe gave her a cookie or him a cookie every once in a while. It gives me yes. chills. It's just such a yeah. strong reminder of every moment counting when you're when you're with people. And just that smile. Yeah. 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 Just that eye contact and smile, that being seen. Mm. 
can make a difference that you don't even know about. Yeah. Maureen Walker says that strategies for disconnection are an intense yearning for connection in an atmosphere of fear. So when I, I hear that and I think, what is the resilience coming through these strategies of disconnection, these survival skills that we can pull out so when we are in an atmosphere where we can feel safe, we can use those skills in a different way. Yes. Yeah, and what's the alternative to, to that? What's the, an alternative to that perspective? Saying what's wrong with them. Okay. So moving from what's wrong with them to what happened to them, but then taking this next step, what did they do to survive and what's the hidden resilience in that survival skill? Got it. That's helpful. So finish the sentence. Don't start with, wow, that's a bizarre behavior. What's wrong with that person? Start with, wow, wonder where someone would learn that. I wonder how that would help someone survive. What's the hidden resilience in there? Mm-hmm. How can I connect with that resilience? Yeah. And that's your place of starting. Yes, yeah. that's your place of starting. Yep. It's important to remember the brain doesn't want to die and to stop doing something means a neural network has to die off. So the brain's going to fight that. So if all you're telling the person is what not to do, their yeah. brain's going to fight against you to hold on to that. But if you give them something new to do, the brain actually prefers growth. It'll go in the new direction especially if you're giving them dopamine by honoring what they've done to survive and honoring the resilience in that, your brain will grow in a new direction. And then the network they're not using will just die off on its own. Or it'll still be there for when they have to go back to their unsafe environment. So now they have adaptable skills for a variety of environments. To learn more about the Resilience Project, head over to the show notes.